What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Sikander Iqbal with the Urban Peace Movement. I do think that we're ramping up uh, around violence prevention at uh, levels that I haven't seen in my 15 years, but it is still very unbalanced. And we do still have a lot of problems that need to be addressed. And it's a multifaceted thing, right? Like it really is going to require us collectively to reimagine what safety looks like, not just for law enforcement, but also even for things like incarceration, um, which is also very violent and a big part of the puzzle that creates more inequality, which also creates more violence. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're joined this morning by Sikander Iqbal with the Urban Peace Movement, a grassroots organization in Oakland, California. Good morning, Sikander. Hey, good morning, Kat. How are you doing? I'm doing all right for a Wednesday. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Sikander. I want to jump right in. Uh, what does the phrase all violence is state violence mean to you as an organizer uh, who's working uh, overtime to keep our streets here in the town safe? I think the idea that all violence is state violence to me, uh, I mean, it, I think it just kind of breaks down with the, what the, the core uh, or the foundation of all the violence we experience is, and it kind of helps expand the way we think about violence, right? Like, um, you know, our society learns from systems in power to perpetuate violent behavior in retaliation and response to threats, wrongdoings, discord, or dispute. Um, and it also expands past the things that we tend to uh, that we tend to experience, or the things we tend to always think of as violence, um, because we don't often think about incarceration as violence, or poverty as violence, or schools that criminalize instead of educate our children as violent. And so, to me, it's all of these uh, spaces where the state is authorized to enact violence, um, really impacting our lives and putting us in positions where we're dealing with now because of the state, um, a number of health issues, mental health issues, um, and really massive inequality, um, which are all things that uh, perpetuate and cause um, the violence that we're more familiar with or that we tend to talk about more, like intercommunity violence. One of the things that I was talking to Brenda Grisham about was the fact that there was this concerted effort on behalf of the state. And and I'll just say, uh, you know, the police chief of Oakland uh, was out here touting this line. Uh, Some more conservative officials that sit on city council were out here touting this line uh, that, that, you know, them folks over there that are worried about and, and some community groups. Let me be perfectly frank, uh, we're out here touting this line, that, that them people over there that, that are so worried about us gunning down unarmed black people in the street for no reason at all don't care about these other babies that have been gunned down. And there was, there was a moment, it felt like a really, really long moment, and, and uh, I mean, there's still work to do, where this really flared up, right? And, and, and where th- there was this... this this what I saw as an increasing divide between these two groups of families. Why do you think the two part question, Secunder? A, why do you think? And this this was you know post defund 
not happening. <laughs> but why do you think the state went into overdrive in terms of trying to divide these families? And what do you think the key is, is in bringing them together? Three part. And, and is that important? Is that a pathway to how we get to peace? Um, right. I might ask you to repeat uh, some of those questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with, uh, fair um, enough. <laughs> right. What does it mean for, um, law enforcement and community groups and even people who are, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but people whose families have been victimized by, um, uh, street violence or inner community violence, drawing a divide between, um, or trying to draw a distinction between the community violence that we experience and, uh, police violence state violence, like when uh, police officers are killing people, correct? Yeah, and, and why do you, what do you think the motives of police departments, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the state, in, in, in touting that line? I mean, it was elected officials, appointed officials that were spewing this into the media at a time where Oaklanders, particularly those of us who live in the East or the West, were experiencing incredibly high levels uh, of gun violence. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think that it's extremely harmful, hurtful, and and really uh, um, frustrating. I mean, it, it almost makes me angry to a point to hear um, those type of that type of language, right? Because it really is like in this point, why, why at a time when, well, I'd say especially at a time like now when we really need people to come together, not just because of violence, but because of everything that we're dealing with, um, like the pandemic, shelter in place, et cetera. Um, it's really a time where we should be thinking about how to bring people together rather than trying to find ways to divide people. Um, and it really is just a, I mean, it's a, it's a very old, it's a very old and overly overused uh, talking point, right? To say, oh, police violence is, is bad and we're dealing with that, which they, they often are not. Um, and then pit that against a black on black crime, which is essentially what I hear at the foundation of that uh, point. Um, and it's this idea that, um, and it's even rooted in, um, this, this idea of the super predator, right? Like there's some really bad actors out there. There's some people out there that are so dangerous that they're going to come after you no matter what we do. There's no solution. There's some people that need to, we, we need to come after. There's some people that we need to lock up. And, and none of that's true. It's, a lot of it is all based in uh, fear mongering and really almost finding somebody to scapegoat, finding somebody to blame. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've seen it time and time again, like with the, uh, the welfare queen, right? Like they're making up these, these ideas, uh, these people that don't really exist, um, for people to direct their anger at rather than uh, focusing on solutions and unity. Yeah. And I'll go back to a, a sentence that, that Brenda Grisham, Christopher Lavelle Jones's mom said in the previous sec sec segment that is just sitting, uh, on my, my soul. It, when she talked about the young people that killed her son, she said these were kids with assault rifles. Kids is where I'm landing, right? And I think people forget that these are children. Their frontal lobes aren't developed. They've grown up in incredible trauma, but even maybe more important than that, Secunder, is the kid on... The, the, the side of the gun where he's pulling the trigger is very, very likely going to be the kid on the other side of the gun facing the barrel. All of our babies um, 
are victims in this and, and demonizing one group with them as opposed to figuring out how to get resources and supports to them is just not going to lead us to safer streets. Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that is true. And I think that's oftentimes where we get caught up is because um, I think overwhelmingly people support the idea of uh of diverting dollars that are dedicated to law enforcement and policing and shifting them over to resources and to support services to help reduce um, the conditions that create crime and violence. Um, but then the fear mongering kicks in um, and it doesn't help that, you know, if these, these are real situations that are happening. And so people are very worried about the day to day, right? If we say we can reduce violence and crime by 20% over the next year, next two years by, providing more mental health services, by providing more case management and life coaching, by providing more jobs, uh, living wage jobs that have benefits. Um, people are really worried about uh, coming out and seeing, um, what did she say, like 20 or 50 shell casings on the ground, being the victim of a, uh, being the unintended victim of a, of a violent crime um, or being targeted for a crime that just goes too far. And, um, you know, the, the thing is that uh, these are the conditions that have not been created overnight. And one of the pushbacks I have to put there is um, policing. The policing budget has been ever increasing, at least in since at least since the 60s. Um, the police budgets have been ballooning um, and they have not ever successfully been able to reduce crime, reduce violence or create safety. And so when are we going to start focusing on investing and uh, alternatives. When are we going to start to put more investment there? And uh, thanks to the the work that that you've helped spearhead and other folks in the city, um, we have started to see some of that. But we also have to acknowledge the same way that um, it took decades for this these systems to get put in place for these conditions to exist. It takes time to one undo the damage that has been done over decades. And two, it also involves uh, reducing inequality, which is not something that the state is uh, um, dedicated to. And so there's a lot of work that is being done. And it's also, I think, uh, not I think I know from doing this work for over 15 years, it's really difficult to count and, and demonstrate like, oh, look, these are homicides that didn't happen. These are shootings that didn't happen. But if you're out there doing the work, you know what things didn't happen because of your presence. Like when, when you're doing the work with MH first, you know, the violence that was uh, prevented just by the presence of a, a program like MH first, right. Just because of the intervention. And so I do think that we're ramping up uh, around violence prevention at uh, levels that I haven't seen in my 15 years, but it is still very unbalanced. Um, and we do still have a lot of problems that need to be addressed. Um, and it's not just about, and it's, and it's, and it's a multifaceted thing, right? Like it really is going to require us collectively to reimagine what safety looks like, not just for law enforcement, but also even for things like incarceration, um, which is also very violent and a big part of the puzzle that creates more inequality, which also creates more violence. I, I'm glad you, uh, you actually talked about it. It is hard, right? Uh, for folks, including myself. I, I live on a block where there is gunfire heard regularly, uh, d which makes me giggle when folks say sh she don't care about <laughs> street violence in our communities. Right. I send my daughter into right. that every single day. I live with it every single day. There is the question of right now, right? We Because I get, I get sort of frustrated sometimes with our own folk, right? Because 
they won't talk about right now. How do we deal with right now and invest in what will take some time to shift? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is happening. Um, and I, and what I've also learned is that a lot of people don't really know what's happening. And I think that's one of the things that uh, we definitely need to do is figure out how to make people more aware of what is happening. And obviously, as more resources are allocated to these spaces, um, there can be some folk, more of a focus on getting the information out there and making it more accessible to everyday people. But right now, because the resources are so finite, we're really just, and not just we at Urban Peace Movement, Urban Peace Movement and the vast network of organizations and people working on violence prevention work, we're, um, you know, we're we're just responding to a lot of the stuff that's going on while also trying to uh, put in systems to uh, have long-term impact to help reduce violence and crime. Um, so some of those things are like uh, building community cohesion, and so part of one big part of building community cohesion is um, getting people to know each other better, right? Like building and rebuilding relationships in neighborhoods. So a lot of times when we're doing events, we're not just doing events just because, you know, we want to create some type of carnival or party. We're not, they're not just block parties just for the sake of block parties. These are block parties that are designed to bring people out in their neighborhoods and connect with each other. Uh, or bring people out to events like, uh, you know, the city hosted this thing called Town Nights all over the city. Um, those are really beautiful events. So we hosted the ones in Acorn and in in and um, uh, now called Hoover Foster, formerly known, or more popularly known as Ghost Town. We held those events with uh, the Hoover Foster uh, Resident Action Committee and the Qaddafi Washington Foundation. And we brought a lot of people out, and it was about just creating safe, fun spaces for people to connect and build relationships. We also did a Town Up Tuesday, which was an event we did at the lake, which brought out 2,500 people. Um, but a lot of it was about what is the messaging at these events? What are we talking to about at these events? What is the intentional experience we're trying to create for people in this space so they can feel safe and actually develop a stronger sense of community? Um, or, you know, or doing art and murals. We just put up a Remembrances Power mural on uh, 15th and Webster. It's at 1528 Webster, and a lot of that is about honoring our loved ones who we've lost, um, and not just from violence. Um, almost everybody on that wall was uh, there. It was about honoring black men who have passed away over the last few years, primarily due to health issues, because health inequality is also part of the state violence we're talking about. Like These are men who are pillars in the community who we've lost because of health inequality. So that's, that's part of it is building community cohesion. There's a lot of healing and restoration work happening. That means like healing in grief circles, creating dedicated space for people who are the most marginalized, whether those are organizations that are focusing on, um, you know, our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters and, and family, or uh, us doing rapid response healing work and understanding that healing and trauma our trauma happens immediately, so healing the healing process should be flexible and nimble, but then it also should happen as soon as possible to help reduce um, reduce the impact of the trauma people experience from gun violence or community violence. We also have organizations that are doing bedside interventions. Once somebody is shot, um, there are community folks that are going to the bedside and engaging them immediately around getting uh, services and support for, them, for themselves, for their family members, 
and then also getting them uh, connected to services to try to mitigate any further harm because we also know that uh, when harm happens, uh, what usually follows harm is retaliation. And so their job is literally to, they're called violence interrupters, their job is literally to interrupt violence so that way we could stop, there could be a dead end somewhere for the violence that uh, happens. Um, and then there's all these spaces where organizations are working really hard, oftentimes against the state, to reimagine public safety, to reimagine what safety looks like for young people, what, re- what it looks like for alternatives to policing. Um, and that, that's just really in the short term. These are all the things that are happening. Um, and we've, they've even started this process of having community ambassadors where there's people um, present in neighborhoods and their, their entire focus is now to just be available for community members to just be a presence in that space. Um, and to me, that's, that's what uh, I don't like using the term policing, but that's what community policing looks like. Not, uh, not moving around in a space where you, are, you can be a threat of violence at any point but just to build relationships to really prevent and mitigate things from happening in the first place. And these people are from the neighborhoods, which makes a very big difference as well. So these are just the short-term things that are happening. And then, of course, there are long-term things going on, like um, like the Mental Health First program um, or, or like uh, the work we're doing with the Free Our Kids Coalition to, to really uh, think about and advocate for alternatives to incarceration for youth. I'm really making sure that we're embedding in any of our systems, policing, not policing, but um, violence intervention into healing, into even in the schools, right? Like, how are we leading with trauma-informed care? How are we promoting restorative justice processes? How are we ensuring kids are getting access to socio-emotional learning so that that way we have better ways to uh, understand and engage the things that are happening around us? Sorry, I know that was a really long-winded answer, but I just feel like it's really important for people to know everything that's happening and within yeah. the context, right? Like OPD's budget is $360 million. The entire violence prevention budget for the city was, I think, this year because of some of the 17. advocating work. Yeah, and that's up from $9 million, right? Because normally they would only have $9 million. So. And they had a fit so, about yeah. that, Secunder. They lost <laughs> their minds. Not, not, and I want to be clear, that $17 million was not taken out of their budget. Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland, proposed uh, an almost $50 million increase to their budget. City Council said, okay, they still get $38 million. We're just going to take this seventeen million and invest it in preventing violence in the first place. <laughs> and Chief Laurent Armstrong lost his whole mind. Secunder, we have to leave it there. I hope you will come yeah. back lots and lots on the show. Thank you for your work and thank you so much for joining us this morning we've been speaking absolutely. to thank you so much for having Bo. me absolutely with urban peace movement a grassroots organization working with our, our young folks in our communities uh to keep oakland's streets safe you've been listening to law and disorder a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system agitate for resistance and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 